All right. First of all, I'm just excited to be here today. So uh, thanks for letting me uh, share. And I don't usually get to stand behind a very giant, powerful pulpit, which I can do things like this on. So I look forward to taking advantage of that at some point during this service. Um, also, I move around a little bit. So if I just happen to leave here for a while, just stick with me. I, I have a tendency to, to do that. So. Um, has anybody ever heard of uh, Viktor Frankl? You guys know who Viktor Frankl is? We got like a couple? Okay, uh, Viktor Frankl was, uh, he was a, a therapist, um, pretty influential one, um, but uh, during World War II, uh, he was, has a, he was of, of Jewish uh, origin, Jewish background, and, um, and he was taken to Auschwitz. And Frankl, had this interesting, he has this interesting commentary in, in the book he wrote uh, called Man's Search for Meaning, where he talks about how he had spent his life considering how one finds meaning and purpose. And, and what he had done is he had been writing an academic manuscript that was sort of going to be his, this was his major work. And when the Nazis came, he managed to get his manuscript and sew it into the lining of his jacket. After uh, being taken, he thought he had uh, he had thought he had dodged a bullet. He had he had kept his life life's work with him. He had kept going, but a few days into his uh, captivity, even this was taken from him. He arrives at Auschwitz, and they they take the remainder of his clothes, and he's given a, a, a standard sort of issue prison uniform that had belonged to another inmate of Auschwitz who had recently been sent to the gas chambers. And in exchange for his manuscript that was his life's work, he found a single page of the Torah hidden in the rags that he had received from the last inmate. And on it read, uh, it was the Jewish prayer, the Shema, Shema Yisrael, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is one, and you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your might. And he says, how should I have interpreted such a coincidence other than a challenge to live my thoughts instead of merely putting them on paper? And he, and he talks about how this, how he had sort of everything he had lived for, everything he had tried to build, man's search for meaning, the way that he understood it had been taken from him, and what he had been left with is this simple prayer that God gave us. And what he comes to understand through his time in the camps is that everything he had written before was just theory. It was here where people were facing life and death, the reality of living in, a, in, in the death of this world, where man's search for meaning became most true. And he, he famously concludes, he says, he who has a why to live for can bear almost any how. Okay, he who has a why to live for can bear almost any how. What I want to do today is I want to open in prayer, and then I want to ask you, what's your why today? What are you living for? What is the heart of our pursuit of meaning and purpose and passion? Let's go ahead and pray. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. God, we come before you today in need. 
in need, in so much need, to be able to, to, to hear from you, to know your word, to be moved by your spirit, Lord, to be changed from the inside out so that we can experience you and so that we can experience you in a deep enough way that we overflow into this world and that they can experience you too. And Lord, that your spirit will come and change us, can change us from the inside out, change this world from the inside out, and that you do a work that we cannot, Lord. So we pray that today you'll give us ears to hear, you'll give us eyes to see, and you help us to understand the truth of the gospel you have for us in Ecclesiastes 6. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, uh, so this summer at Rock of Ages, we've been uh, working through the book of Ecclesiastes. Uh, and for those of you don't, who don't uh, know much about the book of Ecclesiastes, I'll give you a quick summary. Uh, there's this character named the teacher, and he might, might be Solomon, might, might be a Solomon-like teacher, but his whole point is that this is a person with unparalleled prestige and power and authority. It's sort of, think of... Um, sort of the, the, the power of Donald Trump with the wealth of Bill Gates and maybe the wisdom of a Stephen Hawking, right? All rolled up into one human person. And he's, he, he's, he's changed the world that he lives in, all right? And yet, with all this, all that he's given, he famously opens his book with his conclusion. And his conclusion is, does anybody know it? <laughs> Sorry, I like to talk to my congregation. And when I go to a new congregation, it's so funny because... I give questions and people go, oh, I don't know, should I say anything? You can say stuff, it's okay. I'll give you this one. Okay, it's meaningless, meaningless. Everything is meaningless. All right, that's his conclusion. After having all this wealth and power and authority and everything that people pine after, he concludes this is meaningless. And this does sound like a real downer, I admit, until you realize that he's not saying that life has no meaning. He's just saying uh, that meaning, the way we pursue it, the way we experience it, it's, it's fleeting. We can't ultimately keep it. Uh, the word which we translate meaningless or uh, futile or, or vanity in some translations, it's this word hevel, okay? And hevel can be translated a number of different ways. It can mean those, those ways I just translated, but it can also mean smoke or vapor, and so what we're left with is this idea that, uh, imagine like breathing out on a cold day, or if you're, uh, you, know, you know, not that anybody, you'd do that, right? Smoking a cigarette or something, right? But you're, you're smoking, right? And you see, the, you, see the, you see the smoke out there and you go, I can interact with this. I can, I can grab it. I can touch it. But ultimately it dissipates. It leaves me, right? And I go, it's gone. I've lost it. Even though I thought I could have it. And so in the first five chapters, Solomon has been exploring all these things that people go after to experience, but he says they're ultimately hevel. We ultimately lose them. He talks about pleasure and wealth and fame, material possessions, vocation, even spiritual worship, how people go after worship, but ultimately even this is lost if it's disconnected from proper relationship. And so in chapter six, he opens with these lines. He, he identifies something that ties them all together, and he says this. Um, there is an evil that I have seen under the sun, and it lies heavy on mankind. A man to whom God gives wealth, possessions, and honor so that he lacks nothing of all that he desires, yet he does not give him the power to enjoy them, but a stranger enjoys them instead. And so I, I want to I concentrate on the very first part of this verse, okay? It says that God gives three things to people. He says he gives them wealth, possessions, and honor. And for those of you who are uh, new to the church scene, you go, okay, this God stuff is looking pretty good. I'm interested. Tell me more, right? 
And, and this is consistent with what we see in Scripture. Believe it or not, I think God actually wants good things for his people. All right, if we look back at Genesis 1 and 2, where the, we're told that God's plan for humanity was to give them this enjoyment of beauty and the abundance of creation, that humanity was placed into this perfect setting of the Garden and Eden, Eden, where all their worldly needs were met. They had this rich, fertile soil, and, they, and their lives were uh, prosperous, right? They were surrounded by the abundance and the goodness of God. And even after, I mean, many of you know the story, but even after mankind rebelled against God and, and broke our relationship with him, even as God calls the new nation of Israel, they're young and he's sending them to the promised land. And he tells them, for the Lord your God is bringing you into a good land. This is Deuteronomy 8. And, and of a land flowing with streams uh, and springs and underground waters welling up in valleys and hills, a land of wheat and barley, of vines and figs and pomegranates, a land of oil... Uh, olive trees and honey, where you may eat bread without scarcity, where you lack nothing. And in verse 18, he says, you shall remember the Lord your God, for it is he who gives you the power to get wealth, that he may confirm his covenant that he has sworn with your fathers to this day. And of course, famously, Psalm 34 uh, says, delight yourself in the Lord and he will give you the desires of your heart. And yet the teacher says in this verse, in verse two, that this is an evil and we start to ask, okay, so how does, how could God giving good things like wealth and possessions and honor be a bad thing? Does God give bad things to his people? Well, I, don't, I don't think so. And I think this is the same conclusion the teacher reaches when he says, it's not that he's giving them bad things, they're good things, that's evil. He's, he says that God does not give them the power to enjoy them. And so the question is, what gives one the power to enjoy these good gifts of God? What's God's purpose for you and for I today as we consider these words from Solomon, when we consider his own uh, gifts of wealth and possessions of power and whatever other good things we have? What's this all about? Um, now, I know that some of y'all, has anybody been to our, our you know, we just, Mike just talked about how we're going to be given um, some, uh, some of your offerings to, to Chad Africa to help our mission there. Uh, has anybody been to Chad from here, from this congregation? Okay, we got a few, which is great. Um, I, I had the pleasure of going there in 2015 uh, with a class of seminarians. And for those of you who don't know, the, the Lutheran Brethren has been very committed to Chad and building the mission up there. We have over 900 churches there. Um, and this trip in particular was about uh, our upcoming pastors getting a chance to go and see what it's like to have boots on the ground in our, one of our toughest mission fields, um, to go experience what it's like for the people we've been called to minister to, and just to take a position of learning and go and see what it's like. And so um, what we learned was, was, we learned several things. One was uh, they don't have enough written materials. You know, they, we take it for granted that we can just kind of get everything printed or online and PDFs and, and English for us. Uh, they don't have that kind of technology. They need print materials and the lingua franca uh, in between their tribes, because there's 10 different tribes and they all speak different languages, was French and getting theological issues, books printed, reprinted in French was very expensive. So uh, they faced issues like that. Uh, traditionally, there's been issues of racism between the tribes, where tribes were fighting and would, would hurt one another. And now, at, in, as Christians, they're expected to live in one village together. And where they lived, they literally were creating mud huts with thatch roofed. And they had their, their own little outdoor bathroom space where their family used. And there was sanitation issues, not just 
uh, not don't you know not just not just sanitation issues but medical issues uh, the, the week we were there we learned that a child had just died of a curable disease the week before and this is the reality of life that they're facing day in and day out they would they would go and and be uh, subsistence farmers in the morning farming in the fields down the block and then coming in the afternoon and going to school and and it was pretty amazing to see what these men went through it. And, and us as seminarians, we thought, you know, it would be really interesting. I, I, I want to know what, what are the biggest issues you guys face? We've learned so much. What do you face? And their answers were interesting. They said, uh, they're not, the, even though, despite all that, their top three issues were displacing their families to a new place, leaving behind the home community that they'd created, and it was worries about being able to afford and uh, seminary to support their families while they were being a full-time student. And, uh, and after a few minutes, they, they turned it around and they said, well, and what are you? What are your greatest issues? And what do you think we answered? This is where we do the thing, where I ask and then you, yeah, okay, good job. All right, yeah. It was the exact same answers. We said, yeah, just displacing our families, moving to a new place, being far from a home community, being able to afford and, and, and live life as a full-time student. And, but it was interesting because you could, as we talked, you could almost see the disbelief on their faces, right? And I don't blame them for it. As if they were saying, yeah, but I don't so, you, how are you worried about communicating with home families? Like you guys have electronics and Facebook and Skype, right? Like, you can, you can just get on FaceTime and talk to whoever you want. You, you literally flew to Chad for a class trip, right? Like, how can you be worried about finances and being okay? But I, like I said, I can't blame him for it because if, if I'm honest, I, I do this stuff all the time, Right? We love to compare ourselves to just to those who just have a little bit more. If I just had this, if you asked what you made, t- if you know, when you think about yourself in your young uh, teens, and then you look at the end of your twenties, and if you were asked that twenty-year-old, that seventeen-year-old, and say, "Someday I'm going to make what you make at the end of your twenties," you go, "Oh, that would be enough. I'd be great, right?" And then you do the same thing from your 20s to your 30s and your 30s to your 40s and so on and so on. And, and, and we, have these, we have these questions, right? If I had his or her spouse, I'd be happy. If I had those kids, if I had their kids, I'd be happy. If I had his or her bank account, I'd be happy. And yet we all know somewhere down deep what Solomon knew, that it wasn't quite enough. Just a little bit more always seemed to be the answer. You know, I was thinking about that pe- people desire you know, sexual intimacy or, or in, you know, physical intimacy. And, and Solomon said, we're told that he denied himself no pleasure. That he had 700 wives and 300 concubines. People desire comfort. He built his house over 13 years. He had tens of thousands of servants building his house, building forests, gardens, lakes, irrigation systems to, to, to irrigate the forests he was building for himself, all right? He had power. He ruled the entire Near East and had an unparalleled military. He had people desire wealth. And he, had, he, he was so prosperous that the city, Jerusalem, 
Silver was no longer worth anything in Jerusalem because there was so much gold. People desire wisdom and people came to him internationally to find out how he would address issues. This guy had it all and his conclusion still comes back to hevel, 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 everything is hevel and we have to ask ourselves why and in verse seven he tells us, he says, all the toil of a man is for his mouth, yet his appetite is never satisfied. And I remember listening to this story years ago, and this has kind of stuck with me. Um, it, was, uh, there's, it was an existential writer that had written this piece, but a man named Ravi Zacharias was retelling it in case you, you care to go look it up. But he basically tells this story about how there was this, there was this, this diamond merchant who comes to town. Um, they generally live far away, he and his, and his, his uh, wife, and... Um, and, the day, and, and she, ne- she never comes along. It's been years since she's been in this kind of setting. And, and uh, he comes and he says, um, you know, I'm actually going to be really busy with business today. How about you go and you, you have a good time. You do your thing. And at first she goes and does, but as she was walking through the city, she's remembering the sights and the smells of her youth and the experiences. And along with that, she starts to think about the desires that used to drive her and the things she used to to think about. And we're not told exactly what she's going after. We're told that uh, it, it sort of seems to indicate that maybe it's something more carnal in nature. But she resists the temptation throughout the day, but it, she keeps pining. And it just sits with her, sits with her, sits with her. And, and late at night, Her and her husband are asleep and she's still thinking, she's thinking, this is my only opportunity. Otherwise, I may never have this joy, this experience that I've been seeking. And so she gets up, she sneaks out, she goes into the night, she does whatever it is she wanted to do. And early in the morning when it's still dark, she sneaks back in. And she lays down next to her husband. She feels stirred, she feels broken and she starts to cry a little bit, and, and soon she starts to, you can see it's, not just, it's not just streaming down her, her, her cheeks, but she's, she's sobbing, and she sits up in bed, and she's, she's choking back the tears, and her husband wakes up and goes, what's wrong? What happened? What, what's wrong? Are you okay? And she just shoves him away. She says nothing, just Nothing. And this is sort of the, if you read any existential writers, this is the existential anticlimax. This is, and, and Zacharias' conclusion, he says, the, lonely, the loneliest moment in life and when you, is when you have just experienced that which you thought would deliver the ultimate and it lets you down. The moment where you finally made it, you finally got the thing, you finally had the experience, it all came together. And now you question, that was it? What now? And this isn't just a Christian perspective, you know. George Bernard Shaw, the famous famous, uh, Irish poet, he says, there are two tragedies in life. One is to not get your heart's desire, which we all know, but the other is to get it. And the story reveals to me is that we all have these gifts God gives us in varying amounts, right? Good gifts from God, right? Yet we all have the same hunger. And it's something that natural means can't quite seem to get at. We all understand that our desires have natural outcomes, right? Uh, C.S. Lewis in his book, Mere Christianity, says this. He says, creatures are not born with desires 
unless satisfaction for those desires exists. A baby feels hunger. Well, there's such a thing as food. A duckling wants to swim. Well, there is such a thing as water. Men feel sexual desire. Well, there is such a thing as sex. If I find in myself a desire which no experience in this world can satisfy, the most probable explanation is that I was made for another world. And he goes on to say that probably these earthly pleasures were never meant to satisfy this desire, but only to arouse it, to indicate something bigger, something that we were truly meant for. And this is where we start to talk about how the teacher sees the hevel of all these good things, right? God has given humanity so many gifts, marriage and laughter and friendship and enjoyment, honor, wealth, possessions. Yet what God has done is he's not allowed us to let that be enough. He said, I can have all the possessions and all the honor I want in the world and it will not be enough if they are disconnected from the thing that truly gives me the joy I was intended to receive. I've, I've, uh, some of you may be wondering what this is today. I'm going to try to walk away here, see if we can do this. Um, but this, we're, we're going to try this here, all right? Y'all can see yourselves in here, right? This dirty mirror I should have cleaned first, right? All right? Let's just say, let's just say, sorry for those of you who can't see yourself, it would be ideal if you could all see yourselves in this. But let's just say for a second that I wanted desperately to have, to get to know you. You personally, I thought you were amazing. You were the, the coolest person I've ever met and, and I, just, I, I just want to get to know you because I think you're so great, okay? Now, if I am standing over here and I look in the mirror and I see Mike down there. Mike, you're so cool, man. Mike's the coolest man. I just want to get to know that guy. If I want to get to know Mike and I see him in that mirror, how should I get to know Mike? I should go to Mike. If I go and go, oh, Mike, you're the best. Oh, thank you. Did I just get to hug Mike? No. If I hold this up and I shake it real hard, will Mike eventually fall out? No. If I take this home and I put this back in a room, have I taken Mike with me? No. And this is the problem. We start looking at the good things God has given you and I, and we think, if I can just take that thing, if I can just hug it, if I can just take it home, then it'll always be that good thing. But what we need to realize is the good thing was never what set your heart ablaze. It was only the goodness that came through the thing. I can see Mike through this mirror like I can see the goodness of God through wealth, through possessions, through honor, through love relationships, through intimacy, through friendships, that I get a little bit of the joy of God in the good gifts that he's given me but I can't take the thing and expect it to be God. Hope that makes sense.
C.S. Lewis in, in The Weight of Glory, so one of my favorite quotes, he says, the books or the music in which we thought the beauty was located will betray us if we trust to them. It was not in them, it only came through them, and what came through them was longing. If they are mistaken for the thing itself, they will turn into dumb idols, breaking the hearts of their worshipers. For they are not the thing itself, they are only the scent of a flower we have not found, the echo of a tune we have not heard, news from a country we have never visited. All the goodness of God are only these good things that we're talking about here. That I can look at the good things and I can see that it's good. It's only a signpost that's pointing me towards the greater good. The goodness that God has for us. The goodness we see in Jesus. As we wrap up here, we, uh, verse 9 says, Better is the sight of the eye than the wandering of the appetite. And this also is vanity, a striving after the wind. He's saying it's better to, to see the world for what it is. Know that this can actually not deliver the goodness you're longing for. The person will never make you happy. The money will never ultimately make you happy. The possessions will never ultimately make you happy, right? He's saying be honest. In verse 10, he's saying whatever has come has already been named. And it is known what man is, that he is not able to dispute with one stronger than he He's saying, know who you are. We have limitations, and that's okay to acknowledge that, right? I can say, I can tell you and, and argue till I am blue in the face that I am six feet tall. Would that make me six feet tall? I'm a short man. I wish it wasn't true. Almost five nine, five eight and three quarters. Just so you know. Just so you know. All right. I'm not Chinese. Not a woman. I have some wealth, but not as much as I'd like. I have some possessions, but not as much as I'd like. I have some honor, but not as much as I'd like. And I can say... These are the limitations I'm facing. I will overcome them so that I will finally be happy. Or I can realize that dissatisfaction on this side of the grave is predicated on the belief that ultimate satisfaction is possible in a penultimate world. I can realize that dissatisfaction on this side of the grave is predicated on the belief that ultimate satisfaction is possible in a penultimate world. He's saying I can't have the desires, the ultimate desires I was made for because this isn't the ultimate place I was meant for. Verses 11 and 12, um, Solomon finishes up. He says, the more words, the more vanity. And what is the advantage of man? For who knows what is good for a man while he lives the few days of his vain life, which he passes like a shadow? For who can tell a man what will happen after his days under the sun? Um, there's a, I know I've quoted a lot of stuff today, but I feel like it's useful. There's a talking about not knowing what's actually best for us versus what we feel and what we want. There was this article, it's an older article now, uh, written by a guy named Daniel Yankelevich, and he did all this cultural studies in the 80s and 90s. 
But one, he kind of sums up his findings on all these couples, and he, t- he talks about one couple in particular, Mark and Abby. He says, like Mark and Abby, if you feel it is imperative to fill all your needs, if all these needs are contradictory or in conflict with those of others, or simply unfillable, then frustration inevitably follows. To Abby and to Mark as well, self-fulfillment means having a career and marriage and children and sexual freedom and autonomy and being liberal and having money and choosing nonconformity and insisting social justice and enjoying city life and country living and simplicity and graciousness and reading books and friends and on and on. But the individual is not truly fulfilled by becoming ever more autonomous. Indeed, to move too far in this direction is to risk psychosis, the ultimate form of autonomy. The injunction that to find oneself, one must lose oneself, contains the truth any seeker of self-fulfillment needs to grasp. And what he's saying is that Mark and Abby and you and I and Solomon all share something in common. That we think by getting what we want and taking all the good things home for ourselves, we will finally have self-fulfillment. But the problem is this becomes our why. This is the why that Frankel was talking about. The why that drives us. And if your why is all about you, self-focus, self-fulfillment, self-service, then you can't love. Because love isn't about you. And this brings us back to Christ, of course. He had a why. Do you know what his why was? It was you. Christ had a why, and it allowed him to overcome his how, even a how on the cross. that he was the one whom God had given wealth, riches, but he, the rich one, became poor for you. He had the power. He was the powerful one, yet he became weak for you. We want to live forever, and he, the living one, died for you. The world and all creation was his. He had possessions and he gave himself up and all that he had for you. The gospel is this, that God so loved the world, you and I, that he gave up his wealth and possessions and honor, his very life, that whoever should believe in him and realize that his life can be yours should have eternal life. So as we conclude today, and before we go into our time of uh, worship, I want to say that each day we have this opportunity, right? This question to refocus our lives and say, what's it about? What's my why? What am I living for? And who is Jesus in it? Is he just an external piece that you fit in? Or is he your heart?
What's your why? Let's pray. Lord Jesus, thank you for your word. Thank you for the opportunity to share it this morning. Lord, I pray that anything that's helpful this week, you'll help stick with people. Anything that's not, just let it go. Help us to forget all of it that's not of you, Lord. But I pray that you will confront our hearts this week. Teach us about the why. And let us know the heart of God as you gave yourself for us. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.